Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we talk with one of the very first healthcare workers in the state to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Really getting that vaccine, it meant hope, you know, it meant help as we were moving forward through this pandemic. And we look at how warmer, drier conditions are impacting life in the West. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. The lifeblood of the West comes in the form of small white snowflakes that feed the region's water supply. But as KUNC's Robin Vincent reports, a slow start to the winter season is intensifying concerns about the future. It's a cool December day at Colorado's Boulder Reservoir. Glints of sunlight fracture through the clouds and sparkle across the reservoir, which provides residents with 20% of their drinking water. Boulder Reservoir is where the city of Boulder stores its Colorado River water. That's Brad Udall. The climate scientist with Colorado State University is sitting on a dock overlooking the turquoise water. Birds bob along the surface. Most people don't appreciate that on the Front Range of Colorado, half of the water we use here is actually imported into this basin, the South Platte Basin, from the Colorado River via a series of tunnels under the Continental Divide. And with 80% of Coloradans living along the Front Range, that means a lot of people here depend on water from the Colorado Colorado River, not to mention the millions more in New Mexico, Nevada, Utah, Wyoming, Arizona, and California. But climate change continues to dramatically affect river flows, deepening uncertainty about the future of water in the West. Since the year 2000, Colorado River flows are down about 20% relative to the 20th century average. River flows hinge on something we haven't seen much of this year, snow. The west snowpack that feeds the Colorado River and fuels winter recreation usually begins accumulating in late October and stretches into May. But in the last 20 years, that window has diminished. This year, some western ski resorts had to delay their openings in November due to a lack of snow. And in Colorado... Denver has now set a record for the latest snowfall ever. On December 10th, Denver finally broke its 232-day snowless streak. But just three-tenths of an inch was recorded at Denver International Airport. Much more is needed. Across the West, Udall says the snowpack is... Horrendous right now. About 30% roughly around the entire West including, interestingly, the Pacific Northwest, where they've actually had really good precipitation. But it hasn't been cold enough for that precipitation to turn into snow and stay in the mountains where it can help build a strong snowpack. All of this weighs heavy on the mind of Kelly Ormesher. The retired elementary school teacher is stationed along the sandy shore of the Boulder Reservoir, holding a camera with a long focus lens. 
We're looking for some rare birds that are hanging around called snow buntings, and they've been seen here the last couple days. Ormesher is an avid birder, and she notices how a warming climate is affecting wildlife. We've been seeing, I feel like, more birds that are coming through later this year. We were just talking about a group of shorebirds that were hanging out yesterday, which are usually long gone. She's also concerned about the broader implications that recent dry, warm weather will have on the already parched west, where much of the region faces a historic drought. Her worries echo those of climate scientist Ben Hatchett with the Western Regional Climate Center in Reno, Nevada. We are careening towards this future where our mountains no longer have the snowpack that we've come to expect them to have to meet our downstream water needs. Hatchet just co-authored a study that says if human-caused climate change continues at the same rate, we'll consistently see low to no snow within the next 35 to 60 years. The U.S. Drought Monitor's map remains bright red, but on December 9th, it noted a positive development. Heavy mountain snowfall expected in the Cascades, Sierra Nevada, Great Basin, and the Rockies. That's the kind of forecast that heartens scientists Udall. Still, he says overall these conditions are a loud warning bell. Fundamentally, we need a whole new set of rules and regulations for everyone to play by, including industry, where you can't dump pollutants, be they conventional or carbon pollutants, into a global commons that then hurts everybody. The time to implement those new rules, he says, is running out. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Robin Vincent. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find more at our website, KUNC.org. It's clear that one dry year after another is having widespread impacts, including shrinking the water supply for people around the West. From Wyoming down to Mexico and a whole lot of Colorado, that's forcing some serious discussions about who gets to use how much water. Right now, a lot of these discussions are happening in one place. KUNC's Alex Hager is there at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, where he's at the annual meeting of the Colorado River Water Users Association, and he joins us now. Hey, Alex. Hi there, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Now, set the scene for us. What are you seeing so far? Well, what I am seeing is that there is an awful lot of interest in the future of this river. I spend a lot of time talking about how many people draw from it. You know, 40 million people, homes and farms from Wyoming down to Mexico. It's one thing to say that, and it is another thing to see a bunch of those people all in one room. One meeting here started with everyone in the room going around and introducing themselves. And one by one, you're hearing from scientists and farmers and water managers and tribal leaders from all over the West. And all of these people are really coming to terms with how dire this is. And the tone these days here is making no bones about it. It's shrinking quickly, and it doesn't look like it's going to turn around anytime soon. When we talked with you before the conference, you told us that decision makers were feeling optimistic about collaborating on new guidelines for how to share water from the river. Are you getting the sense there that there is that spirit of collaboration? Well, yes and no. I think everyone here sort of knows that at the core of Colorado River negotiations, there's no way forward without some compromise, without some mutual agreement. But things get a little sticky on the way to that agreement. Like one person here told me, when the stakes are this high, there's going to be some finger pointing. One of the big ways that manifests is in the tension between the upper Colorado River Basin and the lower basin. So to take a step back here, just add a little context. Most of the water in the river originates in the upper basin. It falls as rain and snow up high in the Rockies. 
And regardless of whether it's a dry year or a wet year, the upper basin is required to send a specific amount of that water down to the lower half. So the upper basin folks say, look, when it's a bad year, we have got to tighten the belt so we can meet that obligation. But down south, they have the luxury of storing their water away. That gives them a more dependable supply is what they allege. And already at this conference, we've seen people from the upper basin come out and say, we haven't been very loud about this before, but we want to know, we want everyone to know how, how hard we're working to, to conserve water and to reduce demand and do that kind of thing. So a lot of times it's not directly confrontational, but there's a lot of subtle and not so subtle positioning, different groups in the river basin trying to control the narrative about water use. Right. So you have a lot of groups that are trying to meet their own needs while still pulling from this shared resource. How else is that balance showing up? Well, one thing that we expected to see at this conference, which I certainly have seen so far, is some talk about the roles of tribes in river negotiations. So going back to the earliest days of deciding who gets to use what water, Native American people have largely been excluded from those some, from those really important conversations. And now, as we're right on the brink of some serious discussions about the next set of rules for negotiations, all across the basin, we're seeing tribes ask for a bigger seat at the table, or any seat at the table. I was in a session yesterday morning where a tribal council member from the Ute Indian tribe stood up during the Q&A session, and he really pressed a, a water manager from Utah with questions about just that. He was saying he wanted to see more tribal representation and see it soon. But at the same time, you can't paint with a broad brush. You know, it's not the case for everyone. In, in the very same meeting, there was a, a representative from Colorado who came out and made a really big deal about the state's efforts to include tribal voices. And then some members of a tribe within Colorado made a point to stand up and thank them for doing a good job. Hmm. Well, have we seen any deals made yet? Yes, we have. A group of states from the lower basin is signing on to what's called the 500 plus plan. That's a new deal that's going to leave a lot more water in Lake Mead every year to keep it from dropping to even lower levels, which are already on the verge of getting critically low. This plan designates a bunch of money to pay farmers and tribes and water agencies to use less. Basically, states are saying we are on track to see some mandatory cutbacks to our water supply. So let's get ahead of that and keep more water in the reservoir now. Well, what happens next at the conference? Are there any other big agreements or discussions happening before this year's conference wraps up? Well, there are two agenda items I have my eye on for tomorrow. There is one discussion about Mexico's role in all of these negotiations. We have to remember that this is not just something that concerns states and tribes within the borders of the United States. And there will also be some closing remarks from Assistant Secretary of the Interior, Tanya Trujillo. Well, Alex, you've talked about it on this program. Uh, in fact, we heard it mentioned just a few minutes earlier in today's show, climate change is drying up the West. Does that threat feel particularly urgent here in the Colorado River Basin? Yeah, indeed it does. We are hearing the word dire tossed around a lot, which is which is never a good sign. Past conferences here have acknowledged climate change. They've acknowledged the idea that water use and allocation needs to change because of that. But now there's an understanding that we are seriously running out of time to deal with it. We already have a drought plan in action, and people are realizing that even that might not be enough. That plan is kind of a Band-Aid to help the water supply survive into 2026 when policymakers draft up new guidelines. But we're seeing now deals like that 500-plus plan. That's, that's like a Band-Aid on a Band-Aid. And there are critics who say even that deal won't be enough. All right. Well, lots to continue watching in the coming months. Alex Hager covers water and the Colorado River Basin for us. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC.
This week marks the one-year anniversary of COVID vaccines becoming available in Colorado. Last year, frontline healthcare workers became the first group of people to get vaccinated against coronavirus. One of those early workers to get the vaccine is respiratory therapist Marilyn Schaefer. Marilyn is the Director of Respiratory Therapy for UC Health's North Region. She joins us now to talk about the year of vaccination and the role that she and other respiratory therapists have played in fighting the pandemic. Marilyn, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. When did you first find out that you were able to get a COVID-19 vaccine? Oh, my goodness. So um, basically, the Sunday before, um, I got a call to say literally tomorrow, you know, the vaccine has arrived in Colorado. And tomorrow, um, can you be at Poudre Valley Hospital to get the um, vaccine? And I said, absolutely, I will make it there. <laughs> so literally the day before. <laughs> Well, at that point, what were you thinking? How did you anticipate your life would change? You know, honestly, after working with directly with COVID patients and alongside my um, staff and coworkers, really getting that vaccine, it meant hope, you know, it meant help um, as we were moving forward through this pandemic. And, you know, um, the expectation really was, here's our help. Mm -hmm. And how then did real life compare to the expectation? How how did your life change? There was a little a sigh of relief, and I think that you know, for since the beginning of that pandemic, that March before, um, I think I was holding my breath, you know. And when that vaccine came, it was like a sigh of relief. Um, and the reality really is that you know, as we kind of learn and and are more educated on how these viruses work, that they grow and they mutate. You know, I think that as people started to get the vaccine, we really started to see the benefit that they had, you know, versus who was being admitted into the ICU and versus someone who may need a little bit of support. So I think that it was doing the job that it anticipated or set out to do. Well, I want to ask you more about your role. Many people may not be aware. Um, what do respiratory therapists do? Yeah, so basically respiratory therapists, they take care of patients from birth to death. Um, so you can come into the hospital with for something as simple as a nebulizer treatment for asthma. But when you start to need more support breathing like a BiPAP, or unfortunately, if you need to get intubated and be put on life support, um, a respiratory therapist is right there at the head of the bed, assisting the doctor with placing the tube, putting the machines on, maintaining the machine while you're on it. And, um, you know, at the end, whether it's for someone to come off the machine to because they're done getting the support or to expire, the respiratory therapist is usually that person that will um, end life support and pull the tube. Well, I understand you've taken on more of a leadership role uh, just in the past year as the Director of Respiratory Therapy for UC Health's Northern Region. But before that, you were working at COVID patient bedsides? Correct, correct. So um, I was stationed in Greeley Hospital. And um, if you remember, Greeley was one of the first places hardest hit um, because they have the factories and stuff like that there. So our hospital was overwhelmed pretty quickly with COVID patients. And um, so at that time, um, I was supervisor standing shoulder to shoulder with my team um, as these patients were coming in very sick, being intubated, 
um, and um, needing extra support. When you were still doing that bedside work, how did your schedule change because of COVID and how did your duties change? Oh my goodness. Um, I can, I will say that I've never worked so much overtime in my life, you know, um, as we were learning. And again, we were learning this new virus, the effects that it had. And um, it was scary, you know, because we were, we were learning as we treated patients, you know, this therapy worked, this therapy did not. And information was coming out from hospital administration, the government. And, you know, we were trying to gather as much information as we can or as we could around the world as people were learning treatments and therapies and courses for these patients, because it was new to us as well. And, you know, as patients would come in, each patient would have something different than the next and the next and the next. And we had to continue to um, chase it, so to speak, in order to save people's lives. What kinds of patients have you cared for during COVID and how many? Oh, my goodness. How many um, day to day? You know, it's it's constant. It's almost a constant line of patients coming in. So really hundreds of patients through our system. Um and on a daily basis throughout our entire 12 hospitals, you know, we've, we have hundreds of patients with COVID in our system, you know, but going through Greeley, um, the types of patients that we would um, see, of course, in the beginning were our elderly and um, people who had comorbidities um, coming in, you know, those were kind of the first wave of people that it was really attacking hard. Right. How long would you care for COVID patients typically? Oh my goodness. So we would have some people in for as short as a day, but then of course, you know, as we were um, going on, we'd have some people in there 50, 60, 70 days um, on a ventilator, which was unheard of for us. You know, I mean, usually when people are on those long-term ventilators, they're stable in home care facilities or long, long-term care facilities, but to have them in a critical state in the hospital for that long was definitely um, something new for us. I'm wondering if, have you developed relationships with some of your COVID patients or their families? You know, it's it's interesting because, you know, pre-COVID, we could have a patient in our hospital who may be intubated for a day, maybe a week, and we take them off, they go home and live their lives or they expire. And with COVID, you know, with them being in for some, sometimes for months, you get, you form a relationship with not only them and get to know them, but their families that are coming in to visit. You know, you hear stories about them. You get to know their children sometimes. So, you know, it really is, um, you know, we see these news stories of people leaving the hospital and it really is an emotional time, you know, because so many people have passed through and touched this patient and cared for this patient. And it really is one of those things. I mean, because sometimes when you're in that long, um, that so you have good days and you have bad days. And sometimes you may say, I'm not sure if they're going to make it, but when they make it and they're able to leave, you really do have this emotional response where, you know, you've put everything that we know how to do um, into these patients and to see them leave is spectacular. I remember seeing uh, and reading about patients leaving the hospital, getting kind of a parade of, you know, healthcare workers just lining the exit. Yeah, it's amazing. And we're all just eager to be there. And there are, you know, some of those people lining the, the, the halls are people who make sure you tell me what time they're leaving because I want to come to work and be there for that, you know. So it really, really does. Um, 
is a sense of excitement for us, you know, because it's a success. We're speaking with Marilyn Schaefer, the Director of Respiratory Therapy for UC Health's Northern Region. I'm, you've mentioned that a respiratory therapist is also there when someone needs to be taken off life support. How is that decision made? So it's it's a healthcare team, you know. I mean, it's consulting with the families. Um, it's the doctor going over the prognosis of the patient, you know, um, it's, it's how their patient responds, you know, because they, they do have awake times while they're on life support. They're not always, um, in a coma. So it's, it's a, it is not a, um, a quick and easy decision, you know, especially if someone's going to come on, come off to expire, you know, but really it's the, the healthcare team constantly evaluating the patient for readiness to come off of the life support. So you want them off of that as quickly as possible. And are respiratory therapists the ones that ultimately end life support? Generally, yes. Generally, we are the ones that uh, receive the um, verbal or order from the doctor that we're going to end life support. And we are generally the ones that go in the room and um, pull that too. May I ask how you feel uh, taking a COVID patient off life support, how, is that different than someone with a different medical condition? It is. It's very emotional, kind of both ways, where they're coming off to expire or they're coming off to live the next phase of their life, you know, because again, because of the length of time, a lot of them are on that life support and you get to know them. So, you know, it's either... I'm emotional because this is great. I finally get to hear your voice after all these days of um, taking care of you. Or it's emotional on the other end because I was I, we put everything that we could to save your life and we couldn't. You mentioned that you cared for a lot of older patients in the beginning. I'm wondering if you've also cared for younger COVID patients. We have. We have. I mean, as, as this pandemic has gone on and... Um, it's mutated and different forms of it have come around. And of course, you know, as we start opening back up our society and more people are exposed to it, you know, um, we, the, the age of the patients have gone down somewhat, you know, um, and not everyone needs the same level of care as another one, you know, and again, it depends on their comorbidity and um, how much of the viral load they're exposed to. So it, it's kind of one of those things. It's uh, a lot of, factors go into, and it's not predictable who's going to end up in the ICU and who may simply, I have a cold, you know, so. Right. In a lot of conversations that we've had over the course of the pandemic with, um, you know, medical professionals, the, you know, exhaustion is a factor, the burnout is a factor. I'm wondering how you and your staff are coping right now. You know, it's, it's, uh, really difficult thing, you know, and, and of course, you know, we're hearing that the world is short staffed right now, you know, and um, we are the difference between the beginning um, when our hospitals were, you know, closing down clinics and backing off on surgeries, you know, we would have those extra hands to come into the hospital to help, you know, with that first wave. But um, the difference now is that, you know, those clinics are still open and we're still functioning as a society. So in addition to some people just deciding that they don't want to be in healthcare anymore after that first wave of COVID um, and being short staffed, there's a little, there is a little bit of burnout, you know, so to speak, or moral distress going on in the hospital. But what I will say is that from our 
EVS team, our doctors, our nurses, respiratory therapists, that when they come into this hospital and they are front and center with these patients, they show up, they're doing the job, they're putting everything that they have into it. So, you know, on the other hand, when they go home or they have a day off, we really, really are encouraging people, pay attention to yourself, take care of yourself, you know, um, and as much, you know, as many hands as we need on deck, this has been a long process and we need people to make sure that they're paying attention to what they need as well. Where are you finding joy these days? Oh my goodness. I, my husband and I brought two pandemic dogs, so they're a lot of fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love it. It's so Colorado. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, with me, I'm, I love to read. I love to go out and, and be active. I am, I am a walker, you know, and when I can having patio parties with friends, you know, and really taking that time to um, focus on me, you know, and um, have some quiet time with me. Marilyn Schaefer is the Director of Respiratory Therapy for UC Health's North Region. Marilyn, thank you so much for, for talking with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, fewer than half of the Hispanic men who graduate from Colorado high schools go on to attend college. And of those who attend the state's public four-year universities, just 41% make it to graduation. We'll explore the factors contributing to these gaps and the impacts these disparities have on the state as a whole. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.